I never heard of Papadopoulos. The guy was, he was the coffee boy. I could use some coffee today. Get me Papadopoulos! Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in From the Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV 102.3. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, amongst other affiliates, terrestrial and internet. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Uh, well, welcome to it. Uh, Desi Doyen, uh, who, who was that? It was Michael Michael Caputo is that the was, guy's name? Yes, Michael Caputo. He was talking with Chris Cuomo on CNN uh, that, earlier today. He's a former, former campaign staffer. For, former Trump campaign yes, staffer, Trump. yes, calling George Papadopoulos. Who uh, pled guilty to lying to the uh, to federal prosecutors in the special counsel investigation of Team Trump yesterday, Caputo uh, and uh, the others, the White House and everyone close to Donald Trump has been downplaying Papadopoulos as uh, as a coffee boy. Here's that uh, here's that full exchange actually with uh, Cuomo and Caputo. I never heard of Papadopoulos. He never showed up at Trump Tower, never had any interaction with any of the campaign leaders around me. And the leaders of the Washington office of the campaign didn't even know who he was until his name appeared in the press. The guy was, he was the coffee boy. I mean, you, you might have called him a, a, a foreign policy analyst, but in fact, you know, if he was going to wear a wire, all we know now is whether he prefers a caramel macchiato over a regular American mm-hmm. coffee in conversations with his barrister. He had nothing to do with the campaign. And all of this contact with alleged Russians is something completely beyond the scope of his volunteer duties. All right. Well, nothing to do with the campaign. Uh, maybe uh, he, he was Papadopoulos was one of a just a five person foreign policy team on the Trump for president campaign. Uh, but no matter his status in the campaign, lying to federal officials, as Papadopoulos admits to having done now in his guilty plea unsealed on Monday, is a violation of the law. The rule of law and his subsequent cooperation with the special counsel probe over recent months may be very bad news for Team Trump in general. And on that point of lying to federal officials, uh, that could potentially be very bad news for one very high level Trump 
campaign official who was still part of the administration. Legal Eagle blogger Marcy Wheeler of The Intercept and Empty Wheel will join us shortly to explain that, as will Desi Doyen a little bit later with your Green News report. Lots to talk about. Lots to talk about with, uh, well, let's say what suffices for good news coming out of Puerto Rico uh, these days. Yeah. Uh, So there's that. That is straight ahead. And then today we get this news, which... um, well, I find troubling because I know Mike Stark. Uh, for those people who listened, uh, who listened to the broadcast, uh, he we it was just last week. I think Mike yes, Stark was. was on this was on this program. Uh, Mike Stark is a reporter at Share Blue Media, and um, they report today. Jess Ma- Jess McIntosh over there says that after months of being harassed by Ed Gillespie's campaign for simply trying to ask the Republican gubernatorial nominee in Virginia, simply ask him questions. Mike Stark was violently arrested Saturday while filming the annual Annandale Parade. Um, They've got video of this arrest uh, where he was violently thrown to the ground, handcuffed by six police officers. Uh, Ed Gillespie, the Republican nominee there, has repeatedly dodged questions from Stark about his increasingly increasingly racist campaign, specifically these racist campaign ads, um, an uncomfortable endorsement from Donald Trump, who did endorse him, but Gillespie is sort of pretending that didn't happen, and his use of his position in the George W. Bush White House to do the bidding of corporate lobbying clients, which is what we had Mike Stark on uh, on the show last week primarily to discuss. The um, the evasion of Mike Stark's questions, however, uh, who has indeed been dogging uh, the Gillespie campaign, trying to get answer to questions on all of these things. That evasion came to a head when Stark stood filming Gillespie's campaign vehicle as it pulled up to the Annandale parade over the weekend. The Fairfax County Mason District police officer demanded that Stark cease filming the vehicle and that he move back farther than the 20 yard distance that was already separating him from the vehicle after a brief back and forth during which the police officer made clear that Stark would not be able to ask the gubernatorial candidate any questions at this public campaign event. Stark, the reporter, responded, quote, F this with the curse word, the actual curse word. At that point, the officer apparently moved to handcuff Stark, and the disturbing footage uh, shows a second officer then sweeping Stark's legs from underneath him, violently throwing him face first into the sidewalk. More officers ran over. Five men piled onto Stark's back as he begged them to free his arm from underneath his own body and the weight of the police of of five uh, police officers who were on top of him. Multiple witnesses report that Stark was punched repeatedly in the legs during the altercation, though I wasn't able to see that part in the uh, in the scrum shown in this uh, in this video. The police officers claim in the video to be arresting Stark for swearing which I didn't know was a crime. Uh, They cite uh, County Code 511. Stark was ultimately, however, charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest, and he was released on bail uh, on a $3,000 bond. Meanwhile, Gillespie has just one week left in that campaign to hide from tough questions about his total capitulation, as Cher Blue puts it, to white, white supremacists, and shady corporate lobbying practices. The Virginia statewide election for governor 
against Democratic candidate Ralph Northam is next Tuesday, November 7. Go vote, Virginians, however you may wish to vote. Uh, the uh, they note uh, blue uh, share blue notes that to first the candidate had awkwardly sidestepped Stark's questions about his capitulation to the tobacco industry. This has been going back several days now, a couple weeks. Uh, then the team was content to have the candidate simply ignore Stark when he posed a question about Gillespie's racist ads. At a recent debate, Gillespie uh, campaign manager insisted that Stark be barred from the post-debate scrum despite being fully credentialed to cover the event. Later, Gillespie uh, campaign, the Gillespie campaign attempted to use event uh, venue staff to eject Stark from campaign events. Again, he is a reporter. And then the Gillespie team resorted to using the police acting as event security to threaten Stark with trespassing as he stood with other media to cover campaign events. Hours after being released from the Fairfax County Jail after the incident over the weekend, Stark was waiting in the hallway of a strip mall where Gillespie had a public event to talk to the Virginians whose, whose votes he needs on November 7. Stark asked the governor. So he was back there. He was back on the job uh, just hours after being released from jail. Uh, Stark had asked the gubernatorial hopeful why he was so afraid to answer for the racism in his own campaign. The candidate, as usual, ignored him completely. And uh, interestingly, after Stark retrieved his car from the alley where he had parked next to Gillespie's car uh, on the ride home, uh, he Stark discovered that his front uh, his front passenger tire had been punctured. Wow. Maybe just a coincidence. Who knows? In any event, I asked for a comment from Mike Stark to uh, see if he was okay. He writes to say, I was told to stay away from Gillespie's vehicle and its occupants by a policeman. I told him I'm a reporter and would be covering him. The conversation escalated and resulted in my unlawful, unnecessary, and violent arrest. He uh, hastens to add, however, that my injuries are superficial bruising and scrapes. Not sure how superficial. There was a big, huge welt. Did you see that in the video? Yeah. Uh, He says the officers were violent, but not brutal. Essentially, they were letting me know who was boss, that I wouldn't be permitted to speak angrily at cops. Ultimately, I was charged with disorderly conduct and resisting arrest and taken to jail and then freed after posting $3,000 bond. He says, I am confident I will be exonerated when the process has run its course. So that's kind of where we are these days. Uh, remember that House election uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, I guess, up in Montana, where a reporter was beat up by the candidate himself on yes. the night before the Gene election? Forte beat up the, the uh, journalist. That's right. And uh, so that's kind of where we are. Well, he made the mistake in Montana. That candidate did, Gianforte, by not having the cops do it for him. Yeah, I guess that's right, because in that case, it was also a reporter asking questions of the candidate. Yeah, uh, which is his job. You Apparently know? That's, that's a problem these that's days. That's the creepy, creeping authoritarianism. They, they arrest you for doing your job when they could just ignore you, you know? So no wonder, I guess, this new Washington Post-University of Maryland poll finds that 71% of Americans believe problems in U.S. politics have reached a dangerous low point. 71% of Americans. That should be a surprising number. 
Somehow it isn't. Uh, And a majority of those see it as the new normal. This is what's most troubling. Uh, See it as the new normal, not just a temporary glitch in an otherwise fine system, according to Slate. Although the anger isn't solely directed at the White House, 8 in 10 say Congress itself is dysfunctional. Around 60% of Americans say Trump's presidency is making the political system more dysfunctional. Oh, you think? But here's where this gets interesting. When it comes to current political divisions, Americans say that things are at least as bad as they were during the Vietnam War. And uh, and that's, I guess, easy for people to say who, uh, like myself, were too young to remember how things were during the Vietnam War. But uh, the older generation that actually lived through that time, according to this poll, are more likely to see the current state of affairs in a negative light. Seven in ten Americans say divisions are at least as bad as during the Vietnam War, according to the poll, and of those aged 65 and older, meaning those who were actually adults during that time, 77% say that divisions are at least as big as they were during the Vietnam War. Considering all these negative opinions about politicians, Slate writes, it's hardly uh, seems surprising that Americans' views on whether their leaders are ethical and honest has reached at least a three-decade low. Only 14% of Americans, just 14%, say they have a positive view on the ethics and honesty of politicians. That is down from... Uh, 25 percent back in 1997 and 39 percent back in 1987. So from 1987 till now, uh, that number has fallen in half and more than half from 39 percent to 14 percent. When it comes to national lawmakers, a whopping 87 percent believe they largely do whatever is needed to win elections. Eighty seven percent feel that way. And all of that is adding up to a marked decrease in the pride that Americans feel about their democracy. 18% of Americans said they were not proud of the way the country's democracy was working just three years ago. That number has now doubled to 36%. So uh, hard to know if the indictments now of three Trump campaign officials unsealed this week might help Americans feel better about the uh, the way the country's democracy works or worse about the U.S. political system. It is a sign, maybe in one regard, that it's working, and in another it's a reminder that it is not working, that the system is broken. In any event, those questions may be unclear for the moment, but what happens if the nation's chief law enforcement officer, the attorney general of the United States, is himself arrested and indicted? How will folks feel about the system then? Marcy Wheeler of The Intercept joins us next to discuss that possibility, which she says may now be more likely than ever and much more. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. 
but we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit if you can by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. President Donald Trump on Tuesday sought to downplay the indictments of former top campaign aides even calling one of his campaign advisors who pleaded guilty to making a false statement to the FBI, quote, a low-level volunteer. Uh, but during his campaign, he touted the advisor, George Papadopoulos, as a, quote, excellent guy during an interview with The Washington Post as he sought to beef up his foreign policy team. Papadopoulos was reportedly one of five members of the Trump campaign's foreign policy team. The fake news is working overtime, Trump tweeted on Tuesday morning. As Paul Manafort's lawyer said, there was no collusion and events mentioned took place long before he came, he came to the campaign, Trump said in his tweet. Few people knew the young, low-level volunteer named George, who has already proven to be a liar. Check the Dems, Trump tweeted. Well, on Monday, former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort and his deputy Rick Gates surrendered to Justice Department special counsel Robert Mueller and pleaded not guilty to several charges, including conspiracy against the U.S. It was also announced that Papadopoulos had pleaded guilty earlier this month to making a false statement to the FBI after he lied about his interactions with foreign officials said to be close to the Russian government. Politico reports that he admitted that he lied about his meetings with an unnamed professor linked to Russia who discussed, quote, thousands of emails and dirt on Hillary Clinton. That revelation, says CNN, is the campaign's clearest connection so far to alleged Russia's to alleged uh, Russian efforts to meddle in the 2016 election. Now, Russia denies any effort to meddle in that election, and its foreign minister today described the charges as fantasy, the charges that they meddled, that is. A spokesman for Russian President Vladimir Putin dismissed the charges unsealed by prosecutors yesterday uh, as part of an internal affair of the United States. He said any occasion that has been put forward in some internal U.S. investigation against U.S. citizens has nothing to do with us. Former Trump campaign officials and other allies also worked the morning TV news shows to downplay Papadopoulos's role on the campaign. Michael Caputo, a former Trump campaign aide, described Papadopoulos as a coffee boy on CNN on Tuesday. 
On NBC's Today Show, former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski dismissed Papadopoulos as a low-level volunteer who was, quote, never a person who was interacting with the senior management on a regular basis. The White House itself has also said Papadopoulos was not part of the campaign's inner workings. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders during her briefing on Monday, derided him as a mere volunteer because he was unpaid. But the fact that he was unpaid puts him in the ranks with many on Trump's campaign, including Manafort and Gates and Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and senior strategist Steve Bannon, who were all unpaid volunteers in the Trump campaign as well. Uh, also, presumably, then-Senator, now Attorney General Jeff Sessions served as an unpaid volunteer in the campaign. Edward Isaac Dovier at Politico today quotes a comment from the former U.S. District Attorney Preet Bharara about the indictments handed down on Monday. Uh, Dovier says, after eight years running one of the biggest and most active public corruption operations as the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Barrara knows a little about how to read indictments and plea deals. And with Monday's big news out of the Mueller investigation, it looks to him like much more is coming. Hard to tell, he says, but the George Papadopoulos guilty plea tells us A, Mueller is moving fast. B, the Mueller team keeps secrets well. C, more charges should be expected. And D, this team takes obstruction and lying very, very seriously. Barrara says, referring to the former unpaid Trump campaign advisor whose plea deal rocked Washington on Monday, quote, that should be of concern to some people. He said, I don't talk about the things we were examining and investigating during the time I was U.S. attorney, including on the day that I left that job. But there would be people who would know what we were looking at, including the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, because we provided summaries of significant and sensitive cases that we were working. And that's all I'll say, said Barrara. Barrara says this is just a standard answer that he never talks about investigations or cases, but Dovier notes his mention of Sessions lingers in the air. Hmm, well, that name seemed to linger in the air for The Intercept's Marcy Wheeler as well, who also knows how to read indictments and plea deals. Wheeler wrote on Monday, The biggest news of Mueller Monday, the rollout of a money laundering indictment against Donald Trump's former campaign advisor Paul Manafort and campaign aide Rick Gates, and the unsealing of a false statements plea deal by another campaign volunteer, George Papadopoulos, may involve someone not named explicitly in either indictment. That would be, she says, Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Joining us now to explain why Attorney General Jeff Sessions may be worrying a little bit right around now, is Marcy Wheeler. She's the independent journalist who has been covering legal issues surrounding national security, civil liberties, and presidential politics for many years. She has been a contributor to The Guardian, Salon, The Progressive, The Intercept, and many others. Marcy Wheeler, welcome back to the broadcast. Great to be back. Good to have you here, I think. Uh, I want to I ask you... Um, uh, about Sessions being in some tr potential trouble here, as you argue at the Intercept, but on the, on the first on the Papadopoulos indictment itself and the, and his uh, guilty plea. As far as we current know, currently know, uh, 
in in his speaking with that unnamed professor, supposedly with ties to Moscow and and, and trying to set up a meeting between Trump officials and Kremlin officials, um, that in and of itself didn't actually violate any laws that we know of with those acts, right? It, it was the lying about all of that to the federal agents that got Papadopoulos into the trouble that he was arrested and pled guilty to? Well, let's say it was the lying and the obstruction of evidence. He, the day after his second FBI interview, he just, he uh, got rid of his Facebook account uh, mm-hmm. on which he was just, he was conversing with some of these uh, foreign officials. Um, but we don't know. I mean, I, I love reading these documents because they are most telling by what they leave out. Uh-huh. So we don't know. I mean, um, Papadopoulos was arrested on mm-hmm. on July 28th. It looks like he started cooperating in the first days of August. So he was he was cooperating for two months mm-hmm. before the guilty plea. And that's a lot of cooperation. That's a lot of conversation to talk about what went on the campaign that isn't going to make it in the plea because you're trying to keep stuff out of the plea that alerts others to mm-hmm. how they might need to, to shift their testimony. And we're already seeing that, by the way. There was um, one of the people mentioned or alluded to in the in the plea is um, Sam Clovis, who is up to be... Uh, the agriculture department scientist, even though he's not a scientist, right? And um, and he testified to the grand jury last week. Oh. So we know that Mueller was not going to unseal this plea until after he got Clovis's testimony. And I will write uh, after I get off the phone with you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to write a piece about how we know that he lied to the grand jury, or have good reason to believe he lied to the grand jury. And that his attorney, who's Victoria Tonsik, who is this famously oh. uh, truth-challenged Republican yes. uh, wingnut. Yes. yes. So she is already out there trying to tell others what he said to the grand jury in hopes that they can coordinate their story because his story doesn't seem to uh, doesn't seem to match. Papadopoulos's, and he just discovered that on Monday. Interesting. Well, what 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 has been interesting to me is that so much of what has been a problem for Team Trump, whether it was uh, folks on the campaign or folks thereafter, is not necessarily what they did. But the fact that they lied about it, whether it was to federal investigators, whether it was to the Senate, whether it was on the, the forms that they filled out. In other words, you know, a, a presidential campaign can meet with Russian officials. They may, you know, may become president. It's not unusual for them to, to meet and to discuss uh you know, what policies they do or don't believe in, you know, what they might implement when they're elected. But the fact that they keep lying about it seems to come up over and over again and seems to be uh, the biggest problem here. Am I am I off base in, in that assessment? Thus far. But I, I, I think people are hasty, are overly hasty when they claim that that's all there's going to be. Just because mm-hmm. um, we, you know, if if. Republicans worked with Russians known to have hacked Americans, whether they're Russians who later in the summer hacked Hillary's um, server or had hacked Hillary's server, or whether they're agents of the Russian state who were involved in the hack. If Republicans coordinated with them, then it is 
but it is against the law because it would have been accepting assistance in a in a in a political campaign from foreigners. So that's that's one thing. Mm-hmm. And if there was a quid pro quo, if Mike Flynn on December 29th agreed to relax not just the sanctions that Obama had imposed the day before, but the sanctions like the Magnitsky sanctions, which have already come up in the story over and over again, then you've got a quid pro quo. That is a problem. So we don't have that evidence. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that that has been proven yet, but I am saying we also don't have the absence of that evidence. What we have is, I mean, one of the things in the Papadopoulos plea, which I which I am amused by, is <laughs> one of his false claims is uh, what he believed he knew about emails he was told about by the Russian, by well, in, indirectly by Russians. Right. Um, the the professor. The professor who knew. Right. Um, so, uh, so we are told that his comments to the FBI about the emails are false, but nowhere in the plea are we told what he testified after he got his, uh, you know, after he agreed to cooperate, mm-hmm. uh, what he told other people in the campaign about the emails. And so we don't yet know for sure what he told them, and uh, I think you also point out at Empty Wheel today, uh, emptywheel.net, that we also don't know which emails they're talking about or that he even knew that he was talking about, uh, correct? I mean, these could be emails that have yet to be released at all. Right, and and frankly, a lot of people's understandings about what they were looking at with emails that already got got released, a lot of that's already wrong. Mm-hmm. And then there's the whole, you know, questions about foundation emails and so on and so forth. But the larger point is, the Russians, multiple Russian hacking groups, at least two, were hacking um, three, if you count the FSB slash criminal effort at Yahoo, which was going on through this entire period, um, so you've got three hacking efforts on the part of the Russians, uh, and we have no idea. Uh, you know, I assume the IC has a fairly good idea of the universe of emails that the Russians stole, but you and I do not know that. And to suggest that we know what emails are being referred to at any given time, uh-uh. And, you don't know that, I don't know that. And are you more comfortable than you were, uh, as I recall, several months ago, that um, the evidence that has pre- been presented that it was actually the Russian government versus, I don't know, anyone else or, uh, you know, uh, the freelancers out there. Are are you more convinced now in uh, the available evidence that whatever these hacks were, where, where we're talking about, whether it's the DNC or, or John Podesta or anything else, that those actually are tied to the Russian government? I think I was sufficiently convinced. Um, about the time that the ICA came out, although that's partly tied to information that I got through my own reporting. Um, And I do think that there are third parties who have confirmed the IC's uh, view. Uh, Facebook has. Mm -hmm. And I think people should think long and hard about how Facebook would know to confirm the IC's views because um, they're basically... They have the SIGINT capabilities that most nations, with the exception of the United States and maybe the UK, have. And so, uh, you know, I, I find it that, I find that, it very face- telling that Facebook that Facebook has the signals intelligence that nation states do. Yeah, of course, yes, because they've got that global footprint, and right. they have to keep their network safe. So, um, 
And they're allowed, you know, since 2015, they've been allowed to share with Google, which is the same, and Microsoft, which is the same. So, you know, if if they're going to second what the IT says, I think that that's a pretty powerful third-party statement about the Russian involvement. I I do think that they're, I think the Russians built in several levels of plausible, plausible deniability when they leaked emails to Julian Assange and that may come out eventually but uh but i don't think that changes the ultimate fact that 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 plausible plausible deniability was was uh done by people working for russians i want to get into why you uh see sessions as uh being in the barrel next in the barrel here as as roger stone called it uh but there were also you mentioned there were several months between papadopoulos's arrest and his guilty plea and then the unsealing of the documents on Monday is it is it reasonable reasonable to believe that uh, Papadopoulos might have been wearing a wire and meeting with various targets of the probe during that uh, interim over the last couple of months, Marcy Wheeler? It's possible, but I really dis- discourage people from from claiming that. I really do, um, and I and I do that partly because of several things that that uh, both hit the plea and his lawyers have said have suggested he was sharing information voluntarily. He was, um, the, the kinds of information it sounded like he was sharing was answering questions and answering questions about, say, the SIGINT. That the, I mean, partly you don't need to wear wire anymore because these people are all doing business on Facebook. Like, <laughs> it's all there. Facebook has it. They're going to make the same mistake that Papadopoulos made, which is thinking that if you delete a Facebook account after having two interviews with the FBI, it's going to be gone because mm-hmm. it, it isn't. Um, there are so many ways for the FBI to collect the kind of information that three decades ago they used to have to rely on wires for. Um, I, I, I just really discourage people from clinging to that. And also, why should we be hoping that everyone is wandering around with a wire? Even if we want Trump to go down, it's a horrible notion that craziness on Twitter has got us all cheering for the notion that we're all wired up. Because, I'm, you know, I'm not <laughs> cheering. I'm not hoping. I'm just wondering because it does seem curious. That was a, uh, quite a few months there between uh, that yeah, he was said to be cooperating. The, the, I mean, the other thing is this doesn't this doesn't preclude him having conversations with targets, but uh, his plea agreement. His uh, release conditions were quite clear that he there was a list of people he was not allowed to interact with. So he was not supposed to interact with anybody else who's targeted mm. in the investigation. Now, obviously, if the FBI said, hey, go talk to Jeff Sessions and see if you can get him to lie on, on a wire, sure, they might try that. But, uh, but I also don't think, you know, he's not as much in the loop. Um, and so I don't think he would have had the same opportunity. He, and he he lived at least part of the time in Chicago. Well, yeah, and he was a low-level coffee boy, we've heard. So, all right, your suggestion at The Intercept uh, that the worst news here may from these indictments uh, unsealed on Monday may be for Attorney General Jeff Sessions. That seems to start with this exchange between Senator Al Franken, uh, back in January, and then Attorney General uh, nominee at the time, Jeff Sessions, during his Senate confirmation hearing. And if there is any evidence that anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government in the course of this campaign, what will you do? Senator Franken, I'm not aware of um, any of those activities. 
I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have, not have communications with the Russians, um, and I'm unable to comment on it. Okay, Marcy, well. uh, Marcy Wheeler, uh, why <laughs> does that amount to uh, at least the beginning of bad news for Jeff Sessions as you see it? Right, and so Jeff Sessions also testified on the 18th, and he... Of this um, month, of October. It, of this month. And yeah. one of the things people have to think about is, is um, Mueller has had the evidence against Manafort since July, and he's been waiting to indict him. He's had it. He's had him dead to rights since July. He's been waiting. And what he's been waiting for is all of these other things he had to put into place before Manafort could get indicted. So that's true. Um, and, and the unsealing of the Papadopoulos plea, same thing. Uh, as I said, um, uh, this Clovis guy testified last week to the grand jury. That was another thing that had to be put in place before you could release this plea. Mm-hmm. And and so, and I would guess that Sessions' testimony was one of them because Franken followed up. And Franken pointed out, I mean, Jeff Sessions has been trying to explain that away since it was disclosed, you know, what was it, in March that he lied. And, and his... You know, well, he said, hey, let me let me clarify that, uh, Marty, because he said that uh, he was unaware of any meetings with the Russian government concerning, I guess, some sort of collusion. Um, and then it turned out that he actually met himself with the Russian ambassador in his office at the Senate. He claims it was for, uh, you know, Senate business. But uh, which may or may not be true, but is is. <laughs> If he didn't talk about uh, this so-called collusion, whatever that's being defined as now, uh, is that, in fact, a lie, as you see it? Well, so, so you're right. He said, I haven't met with any Russians. Turns out he did. So that's the first lie. But then in follow-up on the 18th, Franken and Leahy had a long session with him as well. Franken said, here's the question I asked you. I asked you, are you aware of any collusion? And asked him name by name of the public names at that point. So asked him about um, Flynn and Manafort mm-hmm. and Kushner. Didn't ask him about, about Papadopoulos. Um, and Sessions said, I know of no collusion. I know of no meet, you know, no, nobody on the campaign who is meeting with Russians. What we learned in the Papadopoulos uh, plea, at a minimum, is that on March 31st of 2016, he sat in a meeting, and there are pictures of it floating around the internet, yep. um, with now President Trump and Jeff Sessions and this Clovis guy and a bunch of other people. I think there were about eight people at the meeting. And at that meeting, according to Papadopoulos's testimony to the FBI, at that meeting he told them, my job here is to set up a meeting between Trump and Putin. And here's how I'm doing that. So he explained that he was having precisely the kind of meetings that Sessions has denied under oath never happened. Um, and so at a minimum, so, yeah, go ahead. At a, yeah, no, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, so at, at a minimum, we know that Jeff Sessions was aware of that because we know that he was in the meeting along with the president. And so that raises the question then uh, if his, well, I guess, does, does Robert Mueller uh, regard lying to Congress with the same gravity uh, that uh, Mueller clearly regards lying to federal prosecutors? So in and of itself, 
Would that be something that Mueller might uh, bring charges about? Or do you suspect that he then asked those same questions uh, if he met with uh, w- with Sessions, if he interviewed Sessions himself? Well, I linked to Sessions' testimony in the piece of where uh, Leahy asked him, have you been, have you been, uh, have you been contacted by, by Mueller's investigation? And Sessions, like, lost it for a second and then got his kind of Gollum look face on and then said, <laughs> well, you should ask them. And he kept scrambling to figure out how to answer that. And the, the official answer was, no, uh, Mueller's inquiry has not asked the attorney general for, for an interview yet. Uh, this was on the 18th. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly Sessions didn't want to answer that question. And clearly it was not outside the realm of possibility. So, um, so I do think Sessions is in some legal difficulty. I do think that Sessions, um, but, it, you know, remember that ultimately what Mueller is trying to do is get everyone to flip on their boss. So that's where he would be going with Sessions. The problem with lying to Congress is, um, under Obama, uh, basically, the DOJ has watered down the law that prohibits you from lying to Congress so badly, um, it, it's not going to get prosecuted, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, it was perjury because it was sworn testimony, so maybe that gets you to a DOJ referral of the Attorney General. But it just makes Sessions' problems far worse, just because he... He, I mean, he must have answered probably 25 questions during this hearing on the mm-hmm. 18th to try and fix his testimony from January, and he just kept digging himself deeper and deeper, and then, you know, two weeks later we have this, and we know that he lied yet again. I got uh, just a minute or so left here, Marcy, um, and I want to, you know, I... The uh, Republicans and Donald Trump have been throwing, and Fox News and Breitbart have been throwing up all kinds of uh, uh, distractions to try to, you know, keep people away from the uh, charges being brought by uh, Mueller at this point, accusing Hillary Clinton uh, of being the real colluder with the Russians. But uh, you wrote uh, about a week or so ago uh, about something that seems like it should be taken more seriously. Basically, um, Republicans are, are uh, being accused of potentially offering something in a quid pro quo, like the lifting of sanctions in exchange for dirt from Russia, uh, from Russian agents for dirt on Hillary Clinton. But the Democrats, you charge, were paying actual money to Russian agents for dirt on Donald Trump via this uh, Christopher Steele dossier. You wrote this after the news came out that... Uh, uh, that the DNC and the Clinton campaign had picked up the funding for that project from Fusion GPS uh, from uh, a Republican donor. So is that, you said that is very bad. Uh, do you stand by that? Well, so the, the passage that you're talking about, I actually wrote uh, when the news of the June 9th meeting first came out. Mm-hmm. So that was me quoting myself. And the, 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 the Donald Trump the, Jr. Uh, meeting with the Russian uh, affiliates, so forth, yeah. Right, and, and the first reports of that meeting were just that somebody contacted him and said, hey, we have dirt on Hillary Clinton. Didn't say we're from, we're from Vladimir Putin, we're on, here on behalf of the FSB, and we're here because we want to trade X, Y, and Z for X, Y, and Z. So in the absence of those things, 
the Democratic Party was screaming collusion, 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 collusion. People should not talk about collusion in any case because it's not a crime. But um, and, and my point then in July was you need to be very careful about what the bar for collusion is because we know that Hillary, and, and I said at the time, I'm like, luckily Democrats are professionals and they would make sure Hillary had several degrees of separation from actual payments of a spy to pay spies to pay the KGB for information. I was wrong. Uh, they didn't insulate her sufficiently, and that was, that was stupid. It, that was stupid, and one of the reasons that's stupid is because whatever the circumstances, we know that Steele shared some information with the FBI. And, and I don't know about you, Brad, but I find it highly inappropriate for a political party of any side to share their oppo research with the FBI and to have the FBI uh, act on it. Um, you know, if it were George Soros paying for it, I would find it very different. Mm-hmm. But I find it very, you know, I find it troubling that that um, information that was being paid for by Hillary Clinton's lawyer um, went directly to the FBI, especially because, and I point out in that same piece, uh, the same law firm was discussing with the, was, was, had already gone to the FBI and said, hey, you guys need to be more public about this hack. And... It's as if feeding the, the, the steel information to the FBI was their response to FBI not taking a more public view. It's just, it's inappropriate. It, there, there needs to be a separation from political activities like that and the FBI. And it could have easily have been done, and then I wouldn't be complaining right now, but the Democrats didn't do it. So that's what I consider stupid. I do consider, I mean, you know, you and I, I think, have had a good conversation here to say um, Papadopoulos, Pled guilty for lying. Mm-hmm. We don't know what, why he lied, and why everyone keeps lying. There's some smoke there. I'm saying there, there may well be fire. We can't say there's no fire. Uh, I don't think either one of us is saying there's fire. I just think that everyone who opposes Trump has to be very careful about screaming fire before we have evidence of fire, and frankly, remembering that um, you know innocent, be, you know innocent until proven guilty. A lot of these people are just going to have been stupid. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are just going to have done stuff that looked bad, and some of them did stuff that probably was really sleazy and possibly illegal. But we have a legal system in this country to sort that out. And until Trump does something to fire Mueller or in other way thwart the investigation, we should let the investigation do what our legal system is supposed to do. It is, uh, to me at least, one of the most maddening and difficult things about following this story is trying to figure out what is real uh, versus, I don't want to call it fake news, but uh, what is, you know, partisan hype, partisan hope, uh, and and just trying to stick to the facts of what we know and what we don't. Uh, Marcy Wheeler, you are excellent at helping us uh, figure that out. I would recommend folks check out your work, of course, at theintercept.com, but every day, uh, many times a day, at emptywheel.net, and, of course, on the Twitters at Simply Empty Wheel. Marcy, really appreciate you joining us here today, and uh, we will be bothering you again soon. So Thanks, Seth. Thanks for having me. Take care. You, you bet. Thank you, Marcy. Okay, a quick break, and we are back with uh, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report and uh, a what looks like a developing story in Lower Manhattan. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I mentioned this story in uh, Lower Manhattan. It looks like eight are now dead oh. in a uh, in uh, what the uh, New York City mayor is apparently calling a terror attack. Let's do this. Let's go to our Green News report, and I'll continue plowing through this information. Come back with that. And I believe, Des, you had an update as well on Puerto Rico yes. following our Green News report. That's straight ahead. But first, our latest Green News report. Why sign a contract that would have this kind of language in there? How does that serve the people of Puerto Rico and the American people? People. Puerto Rico cancels controversial grid repair contract. Currently, at last check, more than one million people across seven states without electricity. Tropical storm Philippe knocks out power on the mainland in seven northeastern states. Global CO2 jumps to the highest level in more than three million years. Plus, we need to not rebuild as is, but put a new 21st century grid system in there. House Republicans may support resilient electric grids. Just don't mention climate change. I won't say a word. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and and snarky comment. We just don't have time tonight to litigate whether extreme weather events are exacerbated by climate change. So for now, let's just say... They are. Yeah, they just definitely are. This is your Green News Report. It is a complicated issue, and we may not have definitive proof until the late 1980s. Okay, Desi Doyen, you say global CO2 is the highest it's been in three million years, but yeah. I thought CO2 emissions had leveled off and were even falling. Our annual CO2 emissions are leveling off, but with El Nino, global CO2 levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide have jumped at a record rate since last year to 403 parts per million. That's a level that's not been seen in at least three million years, according to the United Nations World Meteorological Organization. They warned Monday that the last time CO2 levels were this high, sea levels were up to 60 feet higher than they are today. Mm. I thought you weren't going to mention climate change. Power was knocked out to more than 1.5 million people across seven states in the Northeast after a powerful punch from Tropical Storm Philippe on Sunday with hurricane-force winds that knocked down overhead power lines, which again raises the question of whether the U.S. should be burying power lines like Germany does it is more costly up front, but the U.S. spends way more than Germany does every year on economic losses from power outages and electric grid system repairs. Tropical Storm Philippe, when the hell is this year's hurricane season going to be over? Not till the end of November. Oh, great. Speaking of which, in Puerto Rico, the state-run electric utility PREPA announced on Sunday it will cancel a massive, no-bid $300 million contract to repair the island's battered electric 
electric grid that was granted to a tiny, politically well-connected Montana company, Whitefish Energy. Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rosseo welcomed the cancellation of the contract amid growing controversy in a Sunday press conference calling it a distraction that is delaying the recovery. It's interfering with uh, with everything, it's, and it doesn't go uh, towards the best interest of the people of Puerto Rico. The contracting process, unusually high costs, and highly irregular contract provisions drew scrutiny, like a provision explicitly blocking government audits or reviews of the costs or profits in the contract. The contract is now the focus of multiple investigations in the Department of Homeland Security, in Congress, and reportedly also an FBI inquiry. Good. Governor Rosseo has now activated mutual aid agreements with mainland states for grid repair crews and equipment, Puerto Rico's economy has ground to a halt. It has been six weeks since Hurricane Maria struck. 70% of Puerto Ricans still lack electricity, and more than 20% still don't have reliable, clean drinking water. But some good news, solar energy company Tesla's first microgrid system in Puerto Rico is now up and running at a children's hospital. The system combines solar panels and a large-scale battery and generates all of the hospital's power needs without the grid. Day and night. Exactly. It's one of several small renewable energy and battery-based projects being deployed on the island during rebuilding of the main power grid. And finally, it may be dawning on congressional Republicans that Congress could require updating the island's infrastructure for resiliency against future record hurricanes and also to save money. Here's Republican House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy on Fox Business Network on Sunday. When we go back and make investments here, We should prepare ourselves that there will be a future hurricane sometime in the future. It's happened before and it'll happen again. But we should prepare ourselves so we're not repaying the exact same thing. Just don't mention climate change. I still won't say a word, even though it is the fifth anniversary of Superstorm Sandy, which is starting to look a hell of a lot like Tropical Storm Philippe that just rolled through town. For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Sandy, can't you see? Five years since Superstorm Sandy. Huh? Hard to believe yeah. when the lights went out on Southern on uh, Lower Broadway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was bad. Um, I, so I did have a follow up. Yep. There was supposed to be a big House hearing uh, on Wednesday with uh, the mayor of San Juan, Carmen Yulín Cruz, who's been very critical of President Trump and the federal government response. Also supposed to have Brock Long. The Talking dir- about after Hurricane Maria down in Puerto Rico. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, Brock Long, the director of FEMA. Uh, they were supposed to talk about FEMA's preparedness and emergency response capabilities. And uh, when she when Mayor Cruz landed in D.C for that hearing uh, last night, she was told that they had canceled that contract. She got all the way to D.C. for this testimony, and then they canceled it? Yes. Wow. No explanation. We don't know why the the hearing was canceled. None whatsoever. No idea if they'll even schedule another one. Psych. Indefinitely postponed. 
Wow. Okay. Thank you for that update, Desi Doyen, and for the GNR, as always. Uh, we are uh, been following this story that has been uh, popping up, uh, popping my phone up throughout the past hour here, uh, an attack in lower Manhattan, uh, a vehicle driving onto a bike path near the World Trade Center site and memorial. AP reports the latest is that New York City's mayor says a truck attack in lower Manhattan killed eight people. Oh, no. He called it a cowardly act. Eleven others are injured. Apparently this was a, uh, a, a rented truck. Mayor Bill de Blasio says the attack on a bike path near the World Trade Center, quote, was an act of terror and a particularly cowardly act of terror aimed at innocent civilians. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo called it a lone wolf attack. He says there's no evidence to suggest it was part of a wider plot. Witnesses described a chaotic scene of a white pickup truck hitting bicyclists on that path near the World Trade Center site and then slamming into a school bus. Two children apparently were injured. They say the driver got out of the vehicle, out of the truck, brandishing what appeared to be a gun in each hand. Uh, the um, the suspect was shot. He has been taken into custody. You have no word on his condition. Uh, two guns were found, I guess, at the scene, a pellet gun and a paint gun, reportedly. So those guns that he had in each uh, hand were, were fake guns, but uh, it was a very real attack with eight now dead in lower Manhattan. Mm. We will keep our eyes on that in the days ahead, in the hours and days ahead. Uh, my thanks to our producer. Uh, see, well, we don't uh, we don't make the news; we just report it. Sorry to end on such a downer. Yeah. Uh, my thanks to our producer Desi Doyen, to Marcy Wheeler of EmptyWheel.net and The Intercept for joining us today, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can, as ever, download it for free at bradblog.com or at your favorite podcast site like iTunes, wherever you get it. I hope you'll leave us a good review, nice comment, or not so nice comment, whatever. Uh, but those comments, uh, hopefully good ones, make it a little bit easier for everyone else in the world to find us as well. You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do whatever it is that we try to do over your public airwaves. Yes, your public airwaves each and every day. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>